Good evening, everyone. I want to invite you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter 2 is where we're at tonight. I'm glad that you're here and welcome on this uh, 31st day of October. It also happens to be Halloween, doesn't it? And I'm glad to see that you all have your Halloween mask on tonight. And so uh, we are so uh, want to welcome you. I'm glad that you're here and uh, invite you to find with me 1 Peter chapter number 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and I hope that you have your Bible and will follow along. Last week we were looking at how Peter is writing to this, these believers who are going through suffering and difficulty. Peter himself will, knows about suffering. He knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like to be threatened. He knows what it's like to be dispersed. He knows what it's like to be arrested. He knows what it's like to give up everything and follow Christ. He knows what it's like to endure suffering and for God to meet him in his suffering. Peter will experience it in even a greater way. Tradition tells us that Peter was condemned to death under Nero. Whenever they determined that they were going to kill Peter, according to tradition, that they determined that they would crucify him. Peter said, if you choose to crucify me at my only request, would you please crucify me upside down on the cross? Because I am not worthy to die like my Savior died for me. Wow. What a, what a, great, um, what a great example he is to the churches that he's writing about how to endure suffering. He's reminding them how to suffer rightly and not wrongly. And in the world that they live in, living godly lives is also how we respond when we suffer. In verse number 13, he tells them to submit to yourselves to every human institution and kings, those in authority, governors, and those they send. He said, if you're going to suffer Suffer and do right, but don't do wrong. Be submissive even with authorities, even with those that you don't agree, disagree with. He says, as servants, if you find yourself in a work relationship, as a servant and a master, don't suffer for doing wrong, but suffer for living rightly. And give yourself for the Lord's sake to suffer. And that brought him to he says, when you do that and you suffer and you patiently endure it, this finds God's favor and God's grace in verse number 20. Then verse 21, where we picked up last week, he says, for you've been called. The word called here is very important. You've not only been called out, you've been called to someone. And that someone you've been called to has called you to a mission. And he says, you've been called to this purpose. Christ suffered for you. Suffering's part of the following of Jesus Christ. And he's left you an example that you should follow in his steps. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself, emphatic, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. 
for you were continually strained like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Who is our perfect example in suffering? The perfect example is Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that as a father, as a parent, was a thing that was uh, uh, weighty to me is when I watched how my children mimicked me and mimicked Christy. And they mimicked expressions and words and values and fears and your faith as well. My grandchildren, I watch them and I see expressions in my grandchildren that are expressions of their moms and dads. And notice, all of us, who is your example? Who is it that you watch in your life? And the title of this sermon is, Jesus is our perfect example. And first of all, he is, according to Peter, he is our perfect standard, our perfect example in suffering. You've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you leaving you an example. The word example here means a perfect pattern, a pattern over which you are to trace your life. The word that is used here is like a pattern that you trace over, a pattern that you imitate. It's like a pattern where you fill in the artist's sketch and you're following his example. My kids sometimes, my grandkids say, let's make a picture. And I love it when they draw pictures for me. But sometimes they take a page out of a coloring book, and that has already been laid out, the sketch. And then we fill in and fill in the sketches with different colors. We try to stay within the lines so that in the end, it looks something about like what the person first did the sketch in. So we're to fill in with our lives after the perfect example, which is Jesus Christ himself. He left a model for you, a model on how you behave in this world, a model on how you uh, react in this world, a model on how you love in this world, a model about how to give your life in this world. He gave you a perfect example on how to forgive. And how to trust God. Is there a power in your life, a person in your life that you are watching that's had an influence on how you live your life? He says, not only do you pattern your life, but notice what he says, that you follow in his steps. Walk in his footprints. Walk how he walked. Live like he lived. Neil, you were telling me last week about your father and uh, about trapping with him. And Neil was describing for me he, a situation where his dad took him with him, even when he was a youngster, and he said, listen, you need to walk, watch where I'm walking, watch what I'm doing. And he learned a lot of things about, about trapping. Neil described for me one thing. He said it was so cold, sometimes he would break the ice open and stick his head under the water to see if there was any runs toward the traps. Now, that is commitment to a profession. But Neil's told me privately, there were things I learned from my father, things I learned I didn't want to do from my father. 
Not all our fathers here aren't perfect examples, but can I tell you there's one whose perfect steps we're to emulate, and that's the steps of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The footprints that he walked. You want to know, how do I deal with life when I've been betrayed, Pastor Tim? How did, how did Jesus deal when he was betrayed? How do I deal with it when I'm disappointed, Pastor? How did Jesus deal with his disappointment? How about when they forsake you and they turn on you? How do you deal with it? How about when they lie about you? Did they lie about Jesus? How about when they defame you? How about when they say all manner of evil against you falsely because of me? How about when they treat you unjustly? Jesus is the perfect example. How did he live his life? Before sinful men. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Walk after him. So let's look at that together. First of all, what he experienced at the hands of others, at the hands of sinners. What did Jesus himself experience? Peter here is reflecting on and thinking on in this passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter number 52 and chapter 53. If you look with me in the Old Testament prophet in Isaiah chapter number 53, notice what some of the things that Jesus experienced. In verse number 3, it says he was despised and forsaken of men. Jesus knew what it was like to be hated and despised. Notice not only that, he was forsaken of men. Jesus knew what it was like for people to turn away from him, to forsake him, to leave him. Remember when he looked at Peter, he said, are you going to leave also? He said, where do we go? You alone have the words of life. He knew what sorrows were like. He and our sorrows he carried. He carried your griefs and your sorrows. He's like one whom men turn their faces. They refused to look at him. They considered him to be hideous, and they did not even want to look on him. In verse number five, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He suffered, and he offered himself to God. In verse number seven, he suffered under the hands of men. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. He knew what it was like to be oppressed. Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered trials and Jesus suffered temptations and Jesus suffered at the hands of sinners. And he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted and suffer in this world because we've got a high priest who knows us and is with us and for us and he laid down how to live a life in an unjust world. Amen. What he did not do. This is Peter saying as a prime example for us, here's some things that he did not do. In verse number 22, he committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. One thing that Jesus didn't do, he didn't sin in all of the hardship they brought against him. 
Jesus never sinned one time. His mouth was not filled with deceit. His attitude or speech was nothing wrong or sinful. He endured it. When being reviled, he did not revile in return. When insult, when they turned insult and heaped them on Jesus, Jesus did not respond by insulting them back. That's the way our world acts, isn't it? Winston Churchill was known not only to be a great leader, but he had a very sharp wit and a, an extraordinary biting sense of humor. Churchill was not a, he was also one that was known to drink too heavily. He was often drunk at certain events, and he had ongoing feuds with political adversaries. Among those he feuded with was a woman named Lady Astor, and they would argue and, and, and spar with one another and trade barbs. At one event, Churchill was clearly drunk, and Lady Astor said to him in this great disdain, Mr. Churchill, you are disgustingly drunk. And he said, my dear, you are ugly. And he says, what's more, you're disgustingly ugly. But tomorrow, I shall be sober. But you will still be disgustingly ugly. Wow. Well, that's reviling in return, wasn't it? When Jesus was threatened, he uttered no threats. So they heap threats against him. But he did not threaten them back. Jesus didn't say something like this. You do this to me, and I guarantee you, you'll go rotten hell. No, he didn't. He did not threaten them back. As a matter of fact, when they hurled their insults at him on the cross, and the soldiers hurled insults at him on the cross, and when the thieves on either side hurled insults at him on the cross, and when the religious leaders hurled insults on him at the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our part, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He says he knew no sin. There was no sin in him. He was doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. He was redeeming us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says, And you know he appeared in order to take away sin. And in him there is no sin. When others sin against us, it is no excuse to pay back sin for sin, insult for insult, defamation for defamation, strike for strike. 
Jesus called us to live differently than that. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 5. You know these words well, but let me read them to you again with fresh ears. And you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I think you better hear this in this political world we live in. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek turns to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who ask of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Verse 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 44. Verse 45 says, In order that you may be sons of your father, who is in heaven. Amen. What did he do? We know what he didn't do, but what did he do? Whenever they were reviling against him, he did not revile in return. When they threatened him, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus trusted the Father in the midst of his suffering. What great words for Peter to these scattered believers all over Asia Minor. When they threaten you, when they threaten to harm you, even when they do harm you, don't don't hurt them back, but trust yourself to God. He'll take care of you. In Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus trusted the Lord. In the middle of the crucifixion scene, he cries out from the Christ cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbatonah. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? From Psalm 22. We'll never fully know Jesus, the one who said, if you've seen, he says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are in perfect fellowship with one another. But in that moment on the cross, as he was bearing your sins and mine, he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he couldn't feel or sense the presence of God. He kept entrusting himself. To one who judges righteously. Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Father, even when he can't see him or sense him. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He kept entrusting himself. To one who judges righteously. Justly. Psalm 31.1 says, In thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. And in thy righteousness, deliver me. I want to ask you a question. Can you trust God to take care of you? Let me ask it again. Can you trust God to take care of you? Do you have to take care of it yourself? Can you let him do it? Can you trust him to do justly? Yes. Second point tonight is Jesus not only is our perfect example, he is our perfect substitute. Notice in verse number 24, in this passage of Scripture, he himself, the, 
Peter uses the emphatic word. That's why in the, in the English translation it says, He himself, by himself, for himself. He himself, emphatically, bore our sins. The idea of bearing or bore our sins, it means he carried our sins. Like a priest that carries the offering to God. He bore in his body your sins and my sins. And he made them his very own. And he died on a stick of wood, on a cross, for your sin and my sin. This week I was reading, part of my Bible reading this week is in Leviticus. And... You know, does it ever get a little confusing for you about all the different offerings in Leviticus? It can, right? Like we've got burnt offerings and we've got sin offerings and we've got peace offerings and we've got wave offerings and we've got guilt offerings. And there's, you know, you, but here's one of the things these offerings taught the children of Israel. First of all, when you gathered to worship as children of Israel in the sacrificial system, it was not, oh, it was, it was a bloody experience. I don't think that we can get our heads around what it was like. When you brought your offering, your sin offering, your guilt offering, your burnt offering before the Lord, it had to cost you something. You took one of the animals out of your fold, out of your flock. And you brought that animal to the tent of meeting. And there, outside the tent of meeting, you were to take a perfect sacrifice. One without spot or blemish. And you laid your hands on that creature, on that animal. And you, that hands laying on, signifying the transfer of my guilt upon this innocent victim. And an innocent animal who had never done anything wrong, the one who brought them had to kill them with their own hand. And the blood was spurting out and they captured the blood. It would be all over them. Today I had to take something over to Lindsay's house and drop it off. And I had an old vest that was out in the garage I just threw on to take it over there. Christy said she was over at Lindsay's house helping her with something. And she said, you've got paint or something all over your back. And I said, really? Well, I took my jacket off and looked at it and I said, no, that's just blood. <laughs> Blood! Why is blood all over you? I said, well, it's not mine. It's a deer, I guess. I, last time I cleaned it, didn't clean the vest. Lindsay said, this is disgusting. Well, in Old Testament wor worship, maybe you would have had to bring your own. And they would have killed him. And you would have participated. Because it was your sin. It caused the death of an innocent victim. And then the blood was presented. And the sacrifice was in an act of worship. 
the burning of that sacrifice offered to God. But the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sin. And it required the death of a human. But it had to be a perfect human. And there was no perfect one except God's provision in himself. And Jesus Christ is God become flesh. And he died for your sin and for mine. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18, for Christ also died for sins, how often? Once for all. The just one for the unjust ones. Why? In order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ died for you. How did he die? Number one, he died for you voluntarily. He offered himself up for you. Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20 says, He delivered himself up for me. No one took his life. Jesus said, nobody's taking my life. If I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. Jesus Christ laid down his life voluntarily for you. Jesus Christ suffered for you. If Jesus died involuntarily, then Jesus would be a victim. But Jesus was not a victim. He is a savior. And he came and he laid down his life. And he left you an example to follow in his steps. When you and I live and we embrace the mission of the cross that Christ has given to us as well. Because he said, any man who wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his own cross willingly and come after me. You willingly lay down your life. You willingly will suffer with him. And you willingly forfeit your life so that you may find it. All who desire to live godly will experience persecution. Jesus came with a mission. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And he has called us to follow him. And that means voluntarily say, I'm not about my rights. It's not about me. It's about him and his mission he's called me. Number Secondly, he died vicariously. He suffered for others. The word vicarious just means substitute. He took your place and mine on a cross. He died for you. But he died victoriously once for all. He died in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And Jesus satisfied a holy God when the Holy One died for us unholy ones. Hallelujah. From the cross, he cried out these words. All of the Gospels record that Jesus spoke a, a loud word, a loud, with a loud voice, a shout as he died. The word that he shouted is tetelestai. It is finished. Those are not the words of defeat. Those are the words of victory. When Christ died 
And he bore the full wrath of God. He cried out on the cross, It is accomplished. Sin paid for. And the veil of the temple is rent in two because the sacrifice has now been made for eternity for sin. I praise his name. Why did he die? He died because he loves you. He died because he loved you. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8 says, God demonstrated his own love for you. While you were yet sinners, Christ, he died for you. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse number 10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Amen. Not only did he die because he loves you, he died to liberate you. In chapter number 2, verse number 24, listen to how Peter describes this. In chapter 2, verse 24, he says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that because, so that we might, what? Die to sin and live to what? Righteousness. Jesus set you free to live a right life so that you can die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus did this so that he could liberate you from something to someone, which is himself, and your life could be transformed. Why did he do this? He did it because he loves you, because he wants to liberate you, and so that you might live like him. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says, we, by, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. In the book of Ephesians, chapter number 5, verse 1 says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And listen, listen, and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He said, imitate him, walk after him. But why did he do this? We just sang this so that you could be healed. All of your sin and all of your iniquities and all of your twistedness and all of the deformities of your soul and all of your rebellion that's deep in you. With each blow on our Savior, with each welt on his back, with each piercing in his hand, with each thorn in his brow, with each nail in his hand, with the spear into his side and his heart. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. And by his stripes, you were healed. Your salvation is found in none other than Jesus Christ alone. No therapist can heal the deepest part of you. No money can heal you. No doctor can heal the sickness in your soul. There's only one, and that's Jesus Christ, your healer. Amen? He is your healer. He is Jehovah Rapha, the God that healeth thee. That's who he is. He is your perfect substitute. Thirdly, he is your perfect shepherd. Notice in verse number 25, for you were continually strained like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Boy, isn't that the truth? We were continually, habitually, nonstop straying away and getting lost. The Bible says in Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. But he's returning you to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He is your perfect shepherd. Let me tell you what that good, perfect shepherd does. He provides for every need in your life. How many of you all got some needs in your life? Do you believe God can meet the deepest needs in your life? You know this scripture verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside what? Still or quiet waters. He does what? He restores my what? Soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his own namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are what? With me, your rod and your what? Staff, they do what? Comfort me. He protects you. He provides for you. He's present with you. Because he's your perfect shepherd. Not only that, he recovers you. When you go astray, he finds you. When those threaten to come and destroy you, he protects you and watches over you because he is your good shepherd, your perfect shepherd. In John's Gospel, chapter number 10, Jesus describes his ministry as a perfect shepherd. He says in chapter 10, verse number 11, look with me. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He says, I'm, I'm laying down my life for my sheep. A hireling, he wouldn't do that. He's not a shepherd. He's not the owner of the sheep. The wolf is coming. He leaves the sheep, flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling and not concerned about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. And even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. 
No one snatches them out of my hand. And I will never lose my own. Amen. He recovers me. And he returns me. Really, the, the way the tense is in these verbs here, the returning to the shepherd and guardian of your souls is the work of Christ. He returns you. He brings you home. He rejoices over you. He says, Jesus said, which one of you having 99 sheep or 100 sheep? And he counts and there's one missing. He doesn't leave the 90 and 9, won't you? In good care and go and search until he finds the one he's lost. And when he finds the ones he's lost, he takes in his arms and he puts them on his shoulders and he comes home. And he says, rejoice with me for the one that was lost has been found. The one that was dead is alive. Rejoice with me. I tell you, there's rejoicing in heaven over one that is missing. This is what our Savior does. He returns you. He rejoices over you. And He watches over you. The next word He uses here is not only the word shepherd. He, goes, he says, the guardian of your souls. The word is episkopos. The King James Version translates that word as a bishop. But it really means overseer, somebody that watches over you. And let me say this, the Lord knows your struggles. He knows your failures. He knows your conflicts. He knows your suffering. He knows your sorrow and he knows your grief. He knows all about you. And he has your destination in mind. And he's watching over you. And he's caring for you. Amen. Our Lord loves you, He shepherds you, and He watches over you. Paul David Tripp talks about in one of his books how God watches over and protects us and how He does everything for our good. Now listen, he says everything God does and everything God calls us to only makes sense from the perspective of eternity. If there's no end to the story, believers are a bunch of fools who need to be pitied. There's no reason for what we've, we have tried to do. But there is a final chapter. God is carrying out His purpose and His will in and through your life. And he's preparing you for eternity. And when it's all said and done, whenever we're in the celestial throne room of heaven, John describes it like this, as all of the multitude of people began who suffered and went through hardship and persecution and difficulty, he says, they cried out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, 
These in white robes, who are they? Where'd they come from? I said, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out from the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. And never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah. Some of you have gone through things and you say, why did I have to go through this? And you've suffered. But there is a king on a throne. And he has saved you. And he is with you. And he's shepherding you. And he's watching over you. And he's bringing this good work he started in you to completion. And when it's all done, We will give praise to the Almighty One because He's done all things well for His glory. Amen. He watches you. Father in heaven, may these great great truths sink deep into our soul. Father, I pray that Jesus would be for us a perfect, the perfect example, the perfect standard. Thank you that he is the perfect substitute and that you are our perfect shepherd. So in our trials, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Takeaway questions today. Is Jesus your example? How are you pattering your life after his? How do you spend time with Jesus? How are you applying his example to your life and relationships? How did Jesus demonstrate his love for you? Why did Jesus die for you? How is Jesus presently loving you?